Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. chatting here. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us on this Tuesday. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, May the 2nd. The United States could default on its debt as early as June 1st if the debt limit isn't raised or suspended. That's a new, really serious warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Also moments ago, we did learn House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has agreed to go to the White House meet with the president next week. Also, Hollywood writers now on strike. It is the first time they've done so in 15 years. It means production will be delayed on some of your favorite television shows. We'll have more for you on that. Also, at least six people are dead. After a huge pileup on I-55 in central Illinois, police say that more than 70 vehicles crashed due to low visibility from a dust storm. Also new this morning, the Surgeon General has a plan to tackle America's epidemic of loneliness and isolation. His six-pillar approach to build our social connections. That's ahead. And Serena Williams, great news, pregnant with baby number two. The tennis superstar made the reveal during last night's Met Gala. CNN This Morning starts right now. So I am so excited about the Serena Williams news. I know. For so many reasons. Do you remember when she went on the cover of Vogue with the first baby and that amazing article and how open she's been? Yeah, and she talked about how she would love to continue playing, but she talked about like the physical aspect of growing their family and the toll yeah. it took on her and what women have to go through that men don't. It was it was really interesting and candid perspective, and for yes. her to announce it like that was really. And sweet. for her husband, through this all, has yeah. been so candid, not only so supportive but so outspoken on being a father, on the role and important role of fathers in all of this. Yeah. And just like, I'm very excited and she looks amazing. Yeah, it was a cool moment during the Met Gala last night when everyone's looking at everyone's outfits and what everyone's wearing to see that was Because uh, I think lovely. she put out something like the three of us are excited yeah. to come. So it's very exciting. All right, but to very serious news, we are 30 days, less than a month away from economic calamity if Congress does not act to raise the debt ceiling. That is a new and dire warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in this new letter to lawmakers. She predicts the government could run out of money to pay its bills as early as June the 1st. Yellen writes not raising the debt ceiling would cause severe hardship to American families, harm our global uh, leadership position, and raise questions about our ability to defend our national security interests. New this morning, we've just learned that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has accepted President Biden's invitation to meet at the White House on Tuesday. Both sides still refusing to budge so far in this standoff. Speaker McCarthy is demanding spending cuts that would gut Biden's agenda. The president wants the House to pass a clean debt ceiling bill without any conditions, just like we saw under President Trump. Time is running out quickly if neither side blinks. We could be looking not only at another recession, but really at a global economic crisis. Millions of Americans could start losing their jobs, benefits, and financial security. Christy Romans is going to break down the real-world impact of a default in just a moment. But let's begin with the politics. Melanie, the news, yes, still a standstill, but McCarthy's going to meet with Biden. 
Yeah, that's right. They had been invited, all four congressional leaders, to the White House. We have just learned that Kevin McCarthy has accepted that meeting. And this is a really high-stakes moment. They have not sat down together, McCarthy and President Biden, since February 1st. So this is quite a bit of movement, at least the most movement we've seen in a couple months between both those sides. But despite the fact that we just learned yesterday that the United States could default on its debt as soon as June 1st, both sides are actually doubling down on their positions. Democrats are saying this just shows the urgency of passing a clean debt ceiling hike and that we don't have the luxury of time to do anything else. And Republicans, meanwhile, some of them are questioning whether that date is even real. And they're also saying that this just shows the importance of actually sitting down and beginning negotiations. Take a listen. What they're saying is they're going to default on the debt. So should you guys just find a middle ground between the two? What is the middle ground? A deal with some spending cuts tied to debt ceiling increase. I think that's. I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake. This deal's got to be between Biden and McCarthy or or their respective um, teams because it's just there's there's no other way that um, something gets 60 votes in the Senate. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has taken some early procedural steps to be able to hold a vote on a clean debt ceiling hike. They could also vote on the House-passed GOP debt ceiling bill, which includes a number of spending cuts. But the fact that the only action so far that is potentially scheduled in the Senate are two bills that have no chance of becoming law really just shows how far apart the two sides are. So all eyes are on this upcoming meeting. And remember, Congress only has a few weeks before that they are in session before that June 1st date. So the time is ticking and they are nowhere closer to a deal, Poppy. Well, at least they're sitting down, right? Baby steps. Melanie Zanona, thank you. Caitlin. This is not just drama that is happening in Washington on Capitol Hill. This is a default that could impact you, impact your wallet. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Roman, is here. I mean, we're basically in full-blown crisis mode yeah. because we had already reached the extraordinary measures they were yeah. using to move money around. And now we have this new warning from Yellen that because of the tax receipts they got, what that looks like, it's June 1 is the deadline. And the deadline has really passed. It was January 19th. That's when we hit the debt yeah. ceiling. And so Already, the Treasury Department has been moving money around and delaying some investments so they have enough money to pay all the bills. And what Yellen is saying is that by June 1st, there won't be enough money to pay everything. So what happens? Well, Goldman Sachs estimates that about a tenth of economic activity just stops. A tenth of the economy just stops when you're not able to borrow more money to continue to pay. So then what happens? Well, for sure, you'd go, you'd, you'd go into a recession. That would happen pretty quickly. You'd risk Social Security, Medicare. You wouldn't be able to pay all of it, right? So you'd maybe give IOUs to senior citizens saying, you're not going to get a direct deposit in your account this month, but maybe next month we'll have some money and we can pay you. And a lot of these people, that's all they get yeah. every month. Veterans benefits. Think also about all of the big contractors that work for the American government who then wouldn't maybe be paid. So maybe you'd have furloughs for the federal government workers. No doubt you'd have a stock market that would, would fall here. Borrowing costs would increase, which ironically would make it more expensive to service the debt that they're fighting about. <clears throat> that would be one of those outlooks. You would have 401ks would plummet, a jump in unemployment. Uh, you know, look, it's all just really bad stuff. And there's a lot of debate about whether June 1st is the number. Maybe you could go two or three more days. This is a discussion that in the United States of America, the fact that we're even having this discussion is completely ludicrous. These are bills we have already paid. Congress has already authorized. They're fighting about future spending. Put the politics aside. If they don't get this figured out quickly, this is American living standards that will be smaller. I'm going to say that again. American living standards will go back in time if they can't figure this out. And the thing is, 
now they're saying, okay, next week, May 9th, a week from today, we will go and sit down and meet. But they haven't even started having these discussions about what this is looking like. And it seems like that letter from Yellen kind of just hardened everyone's positions. But if you're if you've got a home loan, you know, what is this going to do to something like that? So something like a home, so we, we see higher rates across the board and we've already had higher rates, but it, the cost to borrow would get even more expensive because of this treasury crisis. You, treasuries are the cornerstone our borrowing is the cornerstone of the of the financial system, right? You would see knock-on effects. A dollar would probably tumble. You'd have emerging markets that could go into into crisis, and how. One way you could look at that is you could look at a typical home loan in the United States. You'd add maybe $130,000 the cost of financing a typical home loan. That's just one sort of real-world example. All of them are very bad examples. And we lived through this in 2011. They even raised the debt ceiling in 2011 after going right to the wire. And still we lost our credit rating. And still the stock markets fell. And still we added billions of dollars to the cost of the above of financing our debt. Yeah, just being on the brink itself. Yeah. It says something that as McCarthy's in Israel, this is like the main thing he is being asked about. Yeah. Uh, real impacts. Christine Romans will yep. be tracking all of them here this morning. Of course, they are very concerning. Also, later this hour, we're going to be joined in studio by California Congressman Ro Khanna. What he thinks could and should be done soon to avoid a default. A new overnight, a Texas sheriff's office released this wanted poster for the man suspected of killing five people, including a little boy. Hundreds of officers and agents are looking for Francisco Oropesa, They say he's armed, dangerous, and on the run. He's accused of opening fire on his neighbors after a father asked him to stop shooting his gun at night in his front yard because his baby was trying to sleep. A law enforcement source tells CNN officers are on the lookout near the southern border in case he tries to escape to Mexico. He is a Mexican national. He has been deported four times after entering the United States illegally. Ed Lavendero is following this story for us again this morning in Cleveland, Texas. I mean, Ed, that was a really stunning development in the last 24 hours. It four times over like almost two decades, they have deported him and he has come back. Right, and it's the kind of details, Poppy, that can complicate investigations like this because investigators here know that uh, the very likelihood of depending on undocumented immigrants here in the U.S. could be uh, the very segment of people that help them also capture uh, this suspect. So uh, clearly, I think investigators behind the scenes are interested in keeping those lines of communication. There's obviously a great deal of um, uh, nervousness among that population in the U.S. about coming forward and, and, and offering information to law enforcement. So that's one of those undercurrents that's playing in this story. But so far, uh, this has been a slow-moving investigation in terms of being able to find this suspect. It's now been more than 72 hours uh, since uh, Francisco Oropesa is uh, suspected of entering the house you see behind me and killing five people in an argument uh, that erupted here on Friday night. Uh, so it's not exactly clear where this suspect might be. Investigators were very quiet about uh, what has been unfolding. Uh, they did not speak with reporters uh, yesterday. Um, they, the last time we spoke uh, officially with, with uh, investigators here, Poppy, they said you know, th- that uh, they believe this suspect could be anywhere. So it's not exactly clear if he's still in the area and hasn't been able to, to get away. Or, uh, as you mentioned, the alerts going out between here and the U.S. southern border because this suspect is a, is a Mexican national. So there is that concern that he might try to slip back south of yeah. the border uh, in, in hopes of being able to escape uh, the law here. But we'll see how this plays out in the coming days. Wow. Ed Levener, thanks so much. Also new overnight, we're tracking this. Hollywood writers headed for the picket line. They are on strike for the first time in 15 years, saying they're not being paid fairly for their work. 
The board of directors for the Writers Guild of America tweeted that they had voted unanimously to call a strike effective this morning. The walkout means that some of your favorite TV shows could come to a grinding halt, including late night television, as they're expected to start airing reruns tonight. Everybody, including myself, hopes both sides reach a deal. But I also think that the writers' demands are not unreasonable. I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. They're the reason. <laughs> unions. This is true. Unions are the reason we have weekends. And by extension, why we have TGI Fridays. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of the late night hosts make jokes. Our CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkevich is live outside the Ed Sullivan Theater in Manhattan. That is where Stephen Colbert, of course, does his late night show. Vanessa, I mean, we've been talking about this and you're seeing this is pitting these TV and screenwriters against the major studios. What are the major sticking points that led to this strike? Well, as you mentioned, it's going to be reruns of late night TV. This is going to impact soap operas. This is going to impact Saturday Night Live. It's going to impact the production of TV shows and movies. But the Writers Guild of America says that the proposal that was offered by the studios was wholly insufficient. Now, the studio is saying that they offered a very aggressive compensation package. They increased residuals on streaming, which was a key sticking point, but ultimately Ultimately, the studio said they could not budge any more because of the request from the Writers Guild to increase the size of the writers' room and commit writers to production for a certain period of time, whether or not the writers were needed on that production. So ultimately, no deal last night, and that is why we're going to see 11,000 writers strike today. Uh, later today, we should, should see some people on the picket lines with signs. But the the studios, who are represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, are streamers and media companies like uh, Disney, Apple, Amazon, including CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. And these companies have had to make, uh, make cost-cutting measures recently. They've also gone through layoffs. But on the other hand, you have the writers who say that they can't support themselves on writing alone because of this massive shift from broadcast to streaming, especially over the pandemic. The last strike we saw was in 2007. That lasted 100 days. And the economic impact was aggressive. We saw about $2 billion in economic losses over the course of those 100 days. Adjusted for inflation, Caitlin, that's about $3 billion today. You know, we'll see how this plays out. It could be a couple days. It could stretch months. It's unclear. But today, a strike is happening. Caitlin. Yeah, and of course, if it stretches months, it goes into the production of the shows that everyone loves to watch, not just late night, which we expect it to affect immediately. Vanessa Yurkevich, keep us updated as you're watching the strike start today. Thank you so much. Also ahead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a new death penalty bill into law that could set up a Supreme Court showdown. We'll also take you live to Illinois, where at least six people are dead after a huge fiery pileup on the interstate involving more than 70 cars and trucks. What led to this next? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, at least six people are dead. 37 are injured after a rare and blinding dust storm caused a 72-car pileup along a major highway in central Illinois. Authorities say it was difficult to even rescue people from their vehicles. Some were engulfed in flames. Our Adrian Broaddus is live 
there with more. Adrian, good morning to you. Terrible 72 car pileup. We see them trying to clean up behind you and six people dead this morning. And the cleanup continued throughout the night, Poppy, and investigators are saying excessive winds mixed with loose soil from nearby farmland caused those blinding conditions. A deadly dust storm causing a massive wreck on a major highway in central Illinois Monday. Sounds like due to the, the low visibility, the high winds, everything, it was Everything just came together, unfortunately, in this particular stretch of I-55, and it was, my heart goes out to them. Six people were killed, including 88-year-old Shirley Harper from Franklin, Wisconsin. That's according to the Illinois State Police. At least 37 people were sent to the hospital with injuries, ranging from minor to life-threatening. Their ages span from two years old to 80, according to state police. I've never seen so many fire engines uh, police cars and ambulances. The smoke was just incredible, uh, blowing over for a long time. More than 70 vehicles crashed on a two-mile stretch of I-55 when 45-mile-per-hour winds swept through nearby farms and fields, picking up dirt, soil, and other debris, blinding drivers. One driver described the scene to local affiliate KSDK, saying the crashes happened one by one all around them. The closer we approached it, um, the visibility just continually got worse. And then all of a sudden, it was just a complete blackout. Airbags were deploying all around us. Another traveler driving in the area at the time described the conditions. You couldn't see, like somebody put a brown blanket in front of your windshield. Could see nothing, you know. Multiple commercial vehicles and tractor trailers were involved in the pileup, including two semi trucks that caught fire. We had, you know, multiple vehicles involved. Some were on fire, uh, so we had f uh, uh, vehicle fires to extinguish. We had to search every vehicle, whether they were involved in the accident or just pulled over, to check for uh, for injuries. And Poppy, all of the cars that were piled up here are now gone. As you can see behind me, they're still cleaning up the remnants left behind and the debris. Meanwhile, this portion of 55 is still shut down in both directions. Poppy? Real tragedy. Adrian, we appreciate the reporting there this morning. Thank you. In just a couple of hours, two women are expected to take the stand in E. Jean Carroll's battery and defamation lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. What to expect today after days of tough cross-examination. All they're trying to do is uphold the will of the people in terms of what we did uh, to make sure that nobody's governing themselves as a major corporation. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis again talking about a new lawsuit against Disney. The board that he appointed to oversee Disney's special tax district in Florida has voted to countersue the company yesterday. That comes after Disney filed its own lawsuit against the board, which had voted last week to nullify Disney's past agreements with the board. 
These dueling suits are just the latest moves in this ongoing feud between the Republican governor and Disney in his home state. CNN's Steve Contorno joins us live from Florida. Steve, uh, of course, we're seeing all of this play out, the lawsuits, the countersuits. It's easy to kind of get lost in the details of all of this. But what is the big picture here of what is happening now between DeSantis and Disney? Well, Kayla, and this has been going on for more than a year now. In fact, this started in response to a bill that DeSantis signed that restricts the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools, something opponents have called the Don't Say Gay Bill. And now we have gotten to this point where you have uh, Disney, one of the largest companies in the state with, with its iconic theme parks that have drawn millions of visitors to the state each year, now suing DeSantis and this board while the board yesterday voting to sue Disney. And let's go back to sort of how we got here because it's really interesting. You know, DeSantis signed this bill into law. Disney responded with a rather short statement just saying, look, we oppose this. We're going to work with lawmakers and opponents to overturn it. That's when DeSantis decided to target Disney's special taxing district. This is a district that was created more than half a century ago when Central Florida was just swamp land and Disney had bought it and said, we wanna build a theme park here. The state said, sure, there's nothing here. Here's a, a, a government we'll create so that you guys can control and build all the infrastructure needed to make your theme parks operate. And for, for most of the last half century, that agreement has stood and allowed uh, Disney to grow into this booming and tourist attraction and the state to become a, a tourism leader. Uh, but DeSantis decided to put his own people in charge of that board as retaliation for Disney speaking out. This Disney snuck in at the last minute and sort of stripped the power from that from that board before DeSantis's uh, members were sat. And now here we are with his lawsuits that have all resulted from this. And as we're also tracking that, yesterday the governor signed a bill that would make child rapists eligible for the death penalty, basically setting him up for a clash with the Supreme Court after they ruled in 2008 that a Louisiana law that would make a child rapist eligible for the death penalty was unconstitutional. What happens next here? It still goes into effect despite that? Yeah, I think we're going to see a legal battle here. And we're also seeing another legal battle over uh, another death penalty bill he signed this year. This one would lower the threshold uh, for a jury to uh, convict someone and send them to the death to death row from from 12 to eight. And that would be the lowest threshold uh, in the entire country. Most states that have a death penalty require someone to uh, require unanimous jury. But Florida would lower that to eight. And Florida, you know, you know, as he does, this has a pretty sorted history with the death penalty uh, it has third the leads the country a number of people on death row who have been wrongfully accused and exonerated so uh, that's really you know one of the pro problems that people see with this legislation and why they're concerned that DeSantis has signed it yeah and he said he's prepared for it to go before the Supreme Court again for consideration Steve Contorno thank you that's going to be really interesting because if I, it would it would go against the 1977 precedent Right, that said that that was excessive punishment and what he just mentioned, a more recent decision, Louisiana versus yeah, Kennedy versus Louisiana. But it's going to be one to watch for sure. Um, Congress is on a tight schedule to do something before the U.S. defaults on its debt in less than a month. What needs to be done before you are directly impacted? Congressman Rokana here to discuss that in studio next. The clock is ticking, really ticking. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warns the United States could default on its debt as soon as June 1st. That is less than a month. 
In a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Yellen writes, if Congress fails to increase the debt limit, it will cause severe hardship to American families, harm our global leadership position, and raise questions about our ability to defend our national security interests. That severe hardship Yellen is talking about is increased borrowing costs, a jump in unemployment. We're talking about millions of jobs here. Your 401k could get hit really hard. Federal benefits and salaries could be put in jeopardy. The House and Senate are in joint session for only eight more days before the 1st of June, that deadline. President Biden has invited Congress's top leaders to a meeting on Tuesday at the White House to talk about this, the debt ceiling, what they're going to do. Kevin McCarthy has accepted that decision. So let's bring in now Congressman Ro Khanna of California to talk about all of this. Notable, too, we'll get to bank failures in a minute, but two of the big three bank failures we've seen since March are California banks. So thank you and good morning. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Uh, so given this Yellen letter, I hope everyone reads every word and pays very close attention to it, especially the decision makers in Washington. Given that we're looking at June 1st, for a possible default here, if there's no deal, can you guarantee the American people we're not going to default? Yes. I mean, yes? I mean look, I, I don't think it would be so irresponsible. It would be a, a self-goal. I mean, who doesn't pay their bills? We pay our bills as Americans. It's patriotic to pay our bills. And I am confident that the president of the United States isn't going to let the country default. They, the Republicans are trying their best to make this an issue. I don't understand why they're acting the way they are. Just pay the bills, and then we could discuss how to reduce there, the, the deficit. Are there spending, well, you know that's not what Republicans say they're willing to do. So are you willing to agree to some spending cuts? McCarthy's proposal is rolling back a number of things to 2022 levels. Call it what you want, but it's a cut in what spending was going to be. Are you willing to agree to any of that to, to prevent a default? I'm not willing to have a conversation under a hostage situation. When I was in Congress and Donald Trump was president, I didn't disagree. I disagreed with a lot of his policies, but I voted to raise the debt ceiling. I voted to pay our bills. If Kevin McCarthy votes to pay our bills, then we could discuss you, how to have deficit it, reduction. And in that, we could discuss spending cuts, the biggest part being the defense budget, almost a trillion dollars. Why aren't we talking about any cuts there? Even Bernie Sanders told uh, Dana Bash in their interview this weekend, I'm willing to look at other things. There's a lot of waste in government. You're telling me there is literally not a thing you would agree to in this Republican proposal to prevent a default for the American people. Well, not a thing. Well, they're not connected. Of course, there's a thing. In, Republicans in, are connecting them. Well, they're doing it irresponsibly. It's never been done before. I mean, in Donald Trump, the Democrats voted again and again to raise the debt ceiling. It's like if you have a credit card debt and as a family... Uh, would you say, look, let's just not pay the debt? Or Why would you say, let's pay the debt? And then we can discuss what budget cuts we should make. So it's important to realize what they're doing. And they're doing it because they don't, they, they want the president, the, the economy to not do well. I mean, people are on record I, saying that. Do you think that's fair? They yeah. want the economy to not do well? Well, well I don't understand why else they, they're holding it hostage. Okay. I'm going to take that as a no. That you're no, zero agreement to any spending cuts, even if we default. I'm open to spending cuts conversation after we pay our bills. <laughs> okay, so that's it. Let's move on yeah. to the banks, okay? Because we just saw the three big U.S. banks fail since March. That is extraordinary. Um, do you expect more banks, to, two of them in California, do you expect more banks to fail this year? I hope, hope not, but there, there I can't say with 100% confidence until, in my view, we have a guarantee on uninsured bank deposits. I mean, I've been calling for that since March. We need to make sure that we have some guarantee uh, on these deposits. So let's explain to people why that matters. A lot of the money that was pulled out of First Republic, which failed uh, over the weekend, is because 
a lot of the accounts had more than $250,000 in them, which is the threshold for FDIC insurance now, on paper at least. You're saying take the $8 trillion of uninsured deposits in this country and fully guarantee them. Is that right? I'm saying for the business accounts, not for the individual accounts, but for if you're a business and you have to make payroll and you're uninsured, which is about $8 trillion, for them, make sure that you're guaranteed and charge them a fee on that account so that you don't have the situation which is now happening where they're all going and putting their money in the big four banks uh, in New York uh, as opposed to the regional banks. Uh, Gary Cohn, who was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, and then he was the top economic advisor to President Trump for a while. He disagrees with you, and here's why. I, I don't agree with Congressman Kohana that we want unlimited FDIC insurance. I think that, to me, is a bit of a race to the bottom. You had picked like two, two million, five million, ten million. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some limit. At some point, you have to limit because you don't want a total race to the bottom where you know, the, the weakest bank with the weakest balance sheet in the world can offer you the highest rate of return on your deposits. And therefore, you take your deposits there because guess what? They're insured by the federal government. That's okay. not what we want to see. Isn't that an important point, too? Gary Conan's thoughtful, but he's wrong on this for two reasons. One, the FDIC itself has come out and said, let's look at having uh, uninsured deposits insured in a major report just yesterday. Second, uh, the shareholders are the ones that lose value. I mean, no bank is going to be sitting there saying, yeah, we should go and have shareholders wiped out to zero. Their incentive to make sure that they're responsible is the shareholders. They don't want to be wiped out. And third, we need to increase oversight over these banks. If we had oversight and shareholders, you could have the banks still be responsible. Uh, like you have banks actually in, in New York that are responsible. I want to ask you quickly about the Wall Street Journal editorial board this morning is calling out J.P. Morgan's um, acquisition of Silicon Valley Bank in terms of what the government has said and yet what the government has done. And, F and J.P. Morgan won this auction. They write, Jamie Dimon, the CEO, must be smiling at the political irony. The Biden administration, which claims to hate big banks, that's the Wall Street Journal's words, not the Biden administration's words. Signed off on Monday on a deal to let Mr. Diamond's J.P. Morgan Chase get bigger and even more profitable by taking over failing First Republic. But didn't the government need J.P. Morgan to do that? It wasn't ideal. If we had guaranteed the deposits earlier, we wouldn't have come to this. But by the time that this happened, we had no choice. The FDIC has a mandate to have the lowest cost resolution. And they have to look at private capital. That's what the law requires. And so in these circumstances, they did the right thing. Do I like it? No. Do I like the fact that regional banks are being bought up and consolidated? No. But in this situation, uh, they did the right thing. So we're in a situation where the biggest banks are the only ones that can save us? We're in a situation, if we're not guaranteeing some of these deposits, that we're going to need private capital. And of mm -hmm. course, a lot of that private capital is in on Wall Street. You're here for some meetings with those big bankers. So come back and let us know how it all goes. Rokana, thank you. Thank you. Good to have you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Caitlin. Great to hear from him there. Also, a quick programming note. Former President Trump is going to take questions from New Hampshire primary voters in an exclusive CNN town hall. I'll moderate that event on Wednesday, May 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Also this morning, on paper, it should be about child support, but there appears to be a proxy battle playing out in Hunter Biden's paternity case. We have the details ahead. Also this. Aerosmith says they're heading into retirement after 50 years. They'll perform one last farewell tour. Tickets on sale Friday. Aerosmith said in a statement, quote, it's not goodbye, <laughs> it's peace out.
In a few hours, lawyers for E. Jean Carroll are expected to call two women to the stand in the former columnist's battery and defamation trial against former President Trump. One of Carroll's friends is expected to testify because Carroll said that she confided in her immediately after the alleged rape that she says happened in the mid-1990s. Carroll's attorneys are also expected to call Jessica Leeds to the stand. She claims that Trump sexually assaulted her while sitting in first class on an airplane back in 1979, an accusation the former president has denied, I should note. Eugene Carroll is suing Trump, alleging that he raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman department store in the mid-90s. The former president has steadfastly denied it. His lawyer, Joe Tacopina, has just wrapped up a two-day cross-examination of Carroll. His line of questioning focused in part on Carroll's shopping trips, media interviews, her book, and a 2012 episode of Law & Order SVU. Our CNN senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, has been tracking this trial and joins us now. What are we expecting to happen here? What have we seen playing out, you know, not just in this cross-examination, but now as they're trying to establish this pattern to back up her allegations? What was so interesting yesterday when I was in court is while last week was very emotional, at times she answered questions through tears, yesterday was very technical. Joe Takapina, what he was trying to do is present evidence to her to show a pattern of what he alleges are discrepancies between what she has said publicly and what she said in this courtroom. For example, he threw up a Facebook post that she put up describing herself as a massive fan of The Apprentice. Another Facebook post where she asked her followers if they would have sex with Donald Trump for $17,000. And she responded saying, look, yeah, I like the show. And yes, I made jokes about having sex with Donald Trump. Then he went on to press an issue that he has pressed repeatedly here, which is, look, you have an advice column where you advise women who have been assaulted to report their assault. But that's not what you did. And they presented different columns that she had written. And she said, quote, I would never call the police for something I was ashamed of. And they also tried to draw discrepancies between how she describes her life in interviews as being, quote, fabulous, but then talked about how much she was suffering here in court. And she said, I don't want anybody to know that I suffer. Now, arguably, the whole trial is riding on her testimony and Joe Tacopino's ability to undermine the credibility of her story. Do you think we hear from Trump? It's unlikely. At this point, he is not expected to testify, though Carol's attorneys have said they plan to use parts of his previous deposition mm -hmm. in their case. Uh, totally separate, but in Arkansas, what we're also seeing play out with Hunter Biden and his attorneys yeah. have been in court. They've been arguing that the way this is being portrayed in the media is wrong, saying he is paying the child support that yeah. he's supposed to do. This is, now they're saying he needs to sit for a sworn deposition to answer questions about his investments, his art sales, other financial transactions. All this is part of that paternity-related case. What is happening there? Sure. So this has to do with his four-year-old daughter down in Arkansas, and this is a process that plays out in courtrooms across the country every day. He is currently paying child support. His lawyer disclosed in court yesterday he pays about $20,000 a month to this to the mother of his child. And they revealed that because they want to push back on the idea that he is a, quote, deadbeat dad. But he wants to reduce that amount. And if you want to do that, there is a process. Again, it's done all across the country every day, but it requires a lot of financial disclosures. And here, this dispute has become really a proxy battle for a lot of partisan mm. battles that he is fighting. The mother of his child, she has a GOP attorney who uh, is very public uh, about aspects of this case. They're also trying to call as an expert witness, I mean, one of Hunter Biden's key political adversaries. This is a former Trump aide, Garrett Ziegler, who they accuse of leaking information. Look, the judge in this case said 
I, there might be leaks, but I, I don't really have any proof of it. But going forward, he will have to reveal more of his finances. The judge said you have to be more transparent. But even some Republicans on the Hill have said that they hope that this hearing reveals more details about his finances. Now, if they can't come to an agreement, a private agreement about how to reduce this alimony, this case could go to trial in July. He is expected to sit for that deposition next month. Again, this is a common process, but because it's Hunter Biden and because Republicans are so interested in his finances, it takes on a national significance. Yeah, and Garrett Ziegler is that Trump aide who is accused of leaking the SARS Treasury reports for Hunter Biden. Exactly, a and now things... involved in a very sensitive family court matter. Yeah, a lot going on here. I know you'll keep tracking it and keep us updated. Thank you, Paula. Thanks, Paula. Also new this morning, the Surgeon General for the U.S. has just released a framework to tackle the, quote, epidemic of loneliness. The impacts of loneliness across the country, we'll talk about that ahead. It is a must-watch in the NBA playoffs. Lakers versus Warriors, LeBron versus Curry. A preview of this rare matchup next. It's goosebumps, man. Like, you, you, this is what you prepare for, for these moments. And this series against the Lakers is going to be epic. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Nothing but the utmost respect you know, for Steph um, and everything he's been able to accomplish not on the floor, but not only on the floor, but also off the floor. You know, we're blessed to be playing at this, at this level still and excited about a new chapter. Some positive words there as LeBron James and Steph Curry are reigniting an old rivalry with some praise for each other in San Francisco tonight. The Los Angeles Lakers, the Golden State Warriors will, will square off in a sports spot in the Western Conference Finals. The two NBA legends facing off in the playoffs for the fifth time after meeting in the NBA Finals for four straight seasons between 2015 and 2018. Let's bring in Jeff Benedict, author of the New York Times best-selling biography, LeBron, and it is a fantastic Reed. Jeff, good to have you. Good morning. Uh, good morning. So, big night tonight, obviously. It's not like it hasn't happened before, but I thought it was interesting that Warrior star Draymond Green described it, the series, not just tonight, as epic. And you've got two seasoned guys still at the top of their game, but with that wisdom of experience. Yeah, I, I think his word epic is a good word. I mean, if you go, we're going back almost a decade when Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson started playing against LeBron in the playoffs. Those were four of the most watched, most enjoyed NBA finals since the Michael Jordan era. I mean, four years in a row. And I think that that's the fact that here we are now in 2023 and those guys are coming back together is it doesn't get much better. It doesn't get much better. One one thing that I was thinking that your book obviously is about LeBron. And we talked last time when we had you on about his relationship with his mother, particularly and how much that drove him. But one thing I was reminded of thinking about tonight in this series is when <coughs> the late Grant Wall, the phenomenal sports journalist, put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? Yes. That the, in high school. Yes. And the headline was The Chosen One. And yeah. Wall famously said, I hope I didn't ruin this kid's life. Right. Well, clearly he was the chosen one and he didn't ruin his life. But yeah. it just made me think about how his whole life has been preparing for a moment like this. Yeah. I mean, they also Grant Wall also called him the heir to Air Jordan, which was a lot of weight and expectations to put on the shoulders of a 16 year old who was a junior in high school, not even a senior, a junior. And LeBron didn't shy away from that. He actually leaned into it. You know, he he wore Michael's number. He he really leaned into the moment. I think what separated him from really from so many other athletes is that he's never 
shied away from those biggest moments. He's actually had his best performances in the biggest moments of his career. His signature play that he's going to be remembered for is a defensive block in the NBA Finals against the Warriors, against this team. And so I'm expecting the next two weeks to be some of the best basketball that that we've seen. It kind of feels like we take it for granted to see two amazing talents. I mean, there are many on the teams. But to see these two guys go head to head, it feels like we're almost this dream duel that we almost, you know, kind of forget sometimes just how magical it is to see two of these amazing athletes. This just doesn't happen every day. No, and it's funny to think of them as old guys. Right, 35 and 38, respectively. Yeah, in NBA years, they are older players. But when you watch them play, they're so cerebral in the way they go about the game because they've been doing it for so long. The mind games that they play against their opponents. The interesting thing is against each other, they, they can't really do that because they both know the other one so yeah. well. They've played against each other. There's not really those mind games. I think it's just going to be some, some fantastic basketball. Yeah. The Steph Curry quote, attitude can manifest a lot of things. Yes. It's so great. I was just going to say, what did he say again? And that was last week? That was Sunday after Sunday. he had that incredible game. And yeah. he, he, but he had missed five free throws in the last two or three games. He was saying, you know, that's not like him. Right. But he was saying, you know, he got up there, and even though he missed, he had this huge grin on his face because he was saying, you know, it's all about what your attitude, attitude is. can manifest. A lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank they you. both have good attitudes. Yeah. Well, we'll see what they manifest yeah. tonight. Jeff, thank, thank you, you so much. Love as always, having you on. Having here. Thank you. Congrats again on the book. CNN This Morning continues right now. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning Washington it is just 31 days to pay America's bills or risk an economic catastrophe. This deal's got to be between Biden and McCarthy. It's juvenile. It's irresponsible. It's essentially political arson. It's time for Republicans and Democrats to sit in the room and act like adults and make sure that the United States doesn't default on our loans. A tragic scene in central Illinois, a dust storm led to a series of pileups. Now that the dust and smoke has cleared, you can see what's left of this horrific and deadly crash. Several vehicles and even the semis that had jackknifed airbags were deploying all around us. The FBI releasing a new picture of the suspect who allegedly gunned down four adults and a nine-year-old boy. He's been deported four times, which means he knows that border crossing. It's very, very hard to go on the run without a support network and a lot of money. And it's unlikely that he had any of those. This morning, more than 11,000 Hollywood writers are on strike after contract negotiations failed with the studios. I also think that the writers' demands are not unreasonable. I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. Unions are the reason we have weekends. And by extension, why we have TGI Fridays. The moment has arrived. Fashion's biggest night is here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But I don't really care about comfort. I care about the vibe and what it feels like and what it looks like. And I keep saying we're so happy to be away from our children. <laughs> and anywhere that would have us without them is just the greatest gift of all. Have you ever been in there? Woo! Woo! It's wild. It's wild. 
Good morning, everyone. Those scenes from the Met Gala last night. Let me just say I completely disagree with Congratulation. I think you have to be comfortable over looking great. <laughs> um, I'm somewhere in the middle there. I'm somewhere in the middle there, but she looked great. Everyone looked great. Did you see the cat outfit on Jared Leto? Do oh, d yeah. Jared Leto and Doja Cat also both were channeling Carl Lagerfeld. Yes, we will get cat. to it all in yes. a minute. We'll show you those scenes and more in a moment, but we're going to talk about a real serious headline coming out of Washington this morning as we are now 30 days away from a potential economic disaster. We are now learning that Speaker Kevin McCarthy has agreed to meet with President Biden, accepting his invitation to the White House next week to talk about raising the debt limit. That comes after an urgent and dire warning from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's now predicting that the government could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st if Congress does not act. Of course, it's not likely Congress is going to act anytime soon. They have not had any talks between the two. And what that means is that millions of Americans could lose their jobs and their benefits. President Biden has invited all four congressional leaders to the White House for talks one week from today. A source tells CNN that McCarthy has accepted that invitation, but so far, neither side is budging on those talks despite the new warning that we're getting from the Treasury Department. McCarthy right now is demanding huge spending cuts, which would gut President Biden's agenda. And the White House wants House Republicans to raise the debt ceiling with no conditions, just like Democrats did for President Trump. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. We're facing the real possibility of a 2008-style economic catastrophe here. Arlette Science is live at the White House. Arlette, you know, ever since this warning came down from the Treasury Secretary, there is no sign of softening their positions from President Biden or Speaker McCarthy. And despite all four leaders going to the White House, it's really between these two men to decide what is going to happen here. Yeah, good morning, Caitlin. And President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy remain far apart in their positions on how to deal with the debt ceiling, but they have at least agreed on one thing, as that is to sit down one week from today to talk about the path forward when it comes to the debt limit. Now, this uh, would break months of silence between the two camps. They have not spoken since early February, but officials here at the White House insist that President Biden is not backing down from his demand that the uh, Congress pass a clean debt that ceiling increase without any conditions attached to it. They, officials have said that he is willing in these discussions next week to start talking about the way forward on budget and appropriations for next year. But there really is this heightened sense of urgency now that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that the U.S. could default on its debt uh, in, in just under a month. That is a staggering deadline that this administration and Congress is facing as it would impact millions of Americans and potentially have uh, catastrophic consequences on the economy. But really, if you take a, a look, this is the most uh, heightened uh, showdown that we've seen between Biden and McCarthy in this era of divided government. The question going forward is whether these two men will be able to come together, come to an agreement to try to avoid any catastrophic consequences to the economy. Yeah, certainly a lot hanging in the balance. Arlette, thank you. Let's bring in CNN chief political correspondent and co-anchor of State of the Union, Dan and Bash. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Great to see you in person. I know. A treat. Eight joint sessions. That's all we have left before, uh, before June 1st to get this thing done. Tom Tillis, Senator Tom Tillis said last night, Washington is best when it is, has a deadline to respond to. Well, let's just be clear. Washington only responds when there's a deadline to respond to. And they, they usually go up to the wire. Brink. I mean, to the brink. I mean, this is one of the many, many reasons why people in the real world look at Washington and say, are you kidding me? Yeah. Get this done. 
But we know what's going on here. What's going on is that the Republicans in the House laid down their marker. They, Kevin McCarthy muscled through that bill last week to, um, to cut spending and also to raise the debt ceiling. And the Biden administration, along with his, uh, most of his Democratic uh, colleagues in Congress, say, we're not going to negotiate on the debt ceiling. So this is very important that they're actually meeting, that they're actually talking. We know what is likely going to happen, which it, if they actually get this done, which is they will negotiate on the budget, not the debt ceiling. It's going to end up being semantics. And the question is whether they can get to the point where there is enough buy-in from enough bipartisan members, particularly in the House, to get this passed. And so America does not default. But that's no easy feat. No, I mean, they could just barely hard. get this bill that they got passed through the House passed. And so the question is, it's not just the hoop that McCarthy and Biden have to come to an agreement. Then McCarthy has to take this back to House right. Republicans and say, OK, I need all of you to vote for this. And that is anything but guaranteed. I, I, I think it's almost impossible, don't you think? He's not going to get all of his Republicans to vote for it, which is why there's got to be some maneuvering, political maneuvering, on the part of, of McCarthy and also the Democrats to, to try to figure out how to get this done to get whatever the this is to raise the debt ceiling passed in the House in a way that has bipartisan support because McCarthy's going to lose a lot of his caucus, his conference. He just is. And so there's got to be a way to do whatever, again, whatever they come up with, assuming they come up with something, with significant Democratic support. Otherwise, America will default. I thought your interview on Sunday with Bernie Sanders was interesting for many reasons, but one, because he did say there are there is a lot of waste in government mm -hmm. and there are things that I would agree to cut. He also said raising taxes he wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you just heard Ro Khanna on with us last hour and he's a hard no. And most people, except for Manchin, are hard no. So I just don't understand where on earth this goes unless you can somehow politically make it look like a win That's for both. That's the only way to do it, right? That's it. I mean, you just nailed it. You, can you go down to Washington and figure this out? <laughs> no, thanks. I'm good. Exactly. No, that's that's exactly right. And when Bernie Sanders uh, was on with me on State of the Union, most of the cuts that he said he would support were military spending, know, national, which they I mean, things that, that they won't do. But yes, he said there is some waste, which I agree with you. That's I a was big like, deal for oh. Bernie Sanders to say that. Uh, it, it, yes, the Democrats are saying we are a hard no, but... These are lines in the sand that each side need to put down in a very deep way for their constituencies. That's, as we've heard so many times, probably in your, all of your private conversations, we're not going to negotiate against ourselves, which is why they put those markers down. But they've already put the markers down. Now it's time to negotiate with the other side. It has real implications. I mean, yeah. if you have Social Security benefits, if you have veterans benefits, all of that could be impacted by this. I mean, the fact that we're less than a month away, I think, is really striking to people as well. And I guess one question is, is it could the markets put pressure on both mm -hmm. parties? I mean, that really seems to be the only something that could actually get That's both of them to come point, to an agreement. Jamie Dimon told us the markets will feel it before you even hit a default. Right, right. Even before we get close to that June 1 yeah. deadline. I mean, Tom Emmer, who's the number three Republican in the House, insisted to me on Sunday the Republicans will not allow right. America to default. So that was, that was a tell. It was an important thing to, for him to say. Uh, it, back in 2011, when the Congress and the White House went up to the brink, America didn't default, 
but the uh, rating was downgraded, and that was really detrimental to a lot of people's wallets. So is it possible that that happens again? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Well, they've got a new deadline. We'll see what happens. Nice to see you. Dana Bash, love having you here in person. Thank you. Also, former President Trump is going to be taking questions from New Hampshire primary voters. Speaking of politics, this is in an exclusive CNN Town Hall. I'm going to be moderating that event next Wednesday, May 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Cannot wait for that. It's going to be fascinating. New this morning, Hollywood writers are on strike. More than 11,000 Writers Guild of America members are walking off the job this morning after negotiations over their pay broke down. The Writers Union says the nation's top studios, networks, and streaming platforms have created a gig economy inside a union workforce. Some of your favorite TV shows could be affected by the strike. Late night shows are going to be among the first to really feel that direct impact. Late night host Stephen Colbert, uh, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers all spoke out. Everybody, including myself, hopes both sides reach a deal. But I also think that the writer's demands are not unreasonable. I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. They're the reason. Unions. This is true. Unions are the reason we have weekends. And by extension, why we have TGI Fridays. If there is a strike, do you go dark? If there's a strike, uh, yeah, I think we, we will, yeah. I think we'll go, we'll go dark. Whatever I can do to support uh, the Guild. Uh, I am actually in the Writers Guild as well, so, uh, yeah. I couldn't do the show without them. For those people who have a job in show business, they are entitled to fair compensation. Uh, they are entitled uh, to make a living. The last strike in 2007 lasted 100 days. It cost an estimated $2 billion. During that time, networks leaned more heavily on unscripted shows. Also, Justin, the University of California Davis is under shelter in place, a shelter-in-place order after a stabbing near campus. It's the third attack that has happened there since Thursday. Students have been advised to stay indoors until further notice. It's unclear how severe the victim's injuries are or whether they are a student at the school. We're still learning more details as of this moment right now. Police say they are searching for a suspect who matches the description, though, from previous stabbings. College senior Karim Najam was stabbed to death at a local park on Saturday. Nam is expected to describe, is described as an exceptional student majoring in computer science. And 50-year-old David Bro was also stabbed to death in a nearby park on Thursday. Bro was known in the community as the compassion guy, described as a gentle and kind, soft-spoken, thoughtful, brilliant, and selfless. I knew this morning, a Texas sheriff's office releasing this wanted poster for the man suspected of killing five people, including a little boy. Hundreds of officers and agents are looking right now for Francisco Oropesa, who they say is armed and dangerous, also on the run. He's accused of opening fire on his neighbors after the father asked him to stop shooting his gun because his baby was trying to sleep. A law enforcement source tells CNN officers are on the lookout near the southern border in case the suspect tries to escape to Mexico. He is a Mexican national. We also learned that he has been deported four times since entering the United States illegally. Ed Lavendero is following this for us in Cleveland, Texas. And that was a big uh, that was a big thing to learn overnight that four times they've deported him and he's come back. Do they have any sense, any leads of where he may be this morning? Um, we do not uh, know if there have, since they've uh, put out the $80,000 reward that they announced on Sunday afternoon, we don't know if that has generated any substantial credible leads that will get them closer to them. Uh, this is the scene here where uh, 
the vigil, uh, there was a vigil here last night, the flickering candles left over from that at this crime scene. Uh, we do know that just next door yesterday, an FBI uh, agent was inside the home and searching and going through uh, various cars that were on the property belonging to Francisco Orobeza. Uh, we tried asking FBI officials what exactly all that was about. They're just, they would only say that they are following all possible leads in this investigation uh, at this point. So yesterday we heard very little from investigators as to uh, how the search for Francisco Oropesa is going, Poppy. It's now been more than 72 hours since this deadly rampage happened here on Friday night. Wow, no closer, it sounds like. Ed, thank you very much for the update. Also coming up this morning, we're going to take you live to the scene in Illinois, where at least six people are dead after this scene here. A huge fiery pileup that involved more than 70 cars and semi-trucks. Plus, the Trump-era immigration policy is about to end next week. Thousands of migrants waiting to cross the southern border. Our Rosa Flores is live in El Paso, Texas. Good morning. Coming up on CNN this morning, take a look behind me. This is El Paso in a state of emergency. Hundreds of migrants are sleeping on the streets, but Title 42 is still in place. So why are we seeing so many migrants here in El Paso? I'll let you know when I see you next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. This morning, a major highway in central Illinois remains shut down after a blinding dust storm caused 72 vehicles to crash, killed six people, left 37 more injured. Police say that the rare storm caused a zero visibility, visibility situation. The crash has involved passenger cars and commercial vehicles, including two tractor trailers that also caught on fire. CNN's Adrian Broadus joins me now. Adrian, uh, of course, a big question is when the interstate is going to open up again, what that's going to look like. What's your sense of what you've heard from officials? Caitlin, you can look for yourself and see the interstate is open now, and this is what it looks like. It reopened in both directions, north and south, about 10 minutes ago. Meanwhile, excessive wind gusts yesterday plus the blowing soil from nearby farmlands created those blinding conditions. A deadly dust storm <laughs> causing a massive wreck on a major highway in central Illinois Monday. It sounds like due to the, the low visibility, the high winds, everything, it was, everything just came together. Unfortunately, in this particular stretch of I-55, and it was, my heart goes out to them. Six people were killed, including 88-year-old Shirley Harper from Franklin, Wisconsin. That's according to the Illinois State Police. At least 37 people were sent to the hospital with injuries, ranging from minor to life-threatening. Their ages span from two years old to 80, according to state police. I've never seen so many fire engines, uh, police cars, and ambulances. The smoke was just incredible. Uh, blowing over for a long time. More than 70 vehicles crashed on a two-mile stretch of I-55 when 45-mile-per-hour winds swept through nearby farms and fields, picking up dirt, soil, and other debris, blinding drivers. One driver described the scene to local affiliate KSDK, saying the crashes happened one by one all around them. The closer we approached it, um, the visibility just continually got worse, and then all of a sudden it was just a complete blackout. The 
airbags were deploying all around us. Another traveler driving in the area at the time described the conditions. You couldn't see, like somebody put a brown blanket in front of your windshield. Couldn't see nothing, you know. Multiple commercial vehicles and tractor trailers were involved in the pileup, including two semi-trucks that caught fire. We had you know, multiple vehicles involved. Some were on fire, uh, so we had uh, uh, vehicle fires to extinguish. We had to search every vehicle, whether they were involved in the accident or just pulled over to check for, uh, for injuries. As you can imagine, some terrifying moments for those travelers who were along this stretch of I-55. Now, at least this portion of I-55 where we are standing from what we can see is back open. We know there was at least 17 miles of the interstate that was shut down. And if you look behind us, it's easy to notice uh, remnants left behind. You can see where the road burned from those cars that were on fire. Caitlin? Yeah, just a dramatic scene playing out, of course, thinking of everyone who was involved in that. Adrian, thank you. Tens of thousands of migrants are waiting in shelters and on streets in makeshift camps in northern Mexico, just as the Trump era border policy, Title 42, is about to expire. This is according to advocates and officials in four cities. Title 42 allows the United States to quickly expel migrants from the country. President Trump invoked it during the pandemic, and it will expire on Thursday. Rosa Flores is live in El Paso, Texas, right on the border. Rosa, good morning to you. Talk about the significance of what we're seeing behind you, given this expiration date of next week. You know, Poppy, the last time you and I spoke and I was in El Paso, there were dozens of migrants on the street. Take a look behind me now. There are hundreds of migrants around this Catholic church. In some areas, it's about five people deep in this sidewalk. Now, city officials here very concerned about public safety, about shelter and transportation. The transportation piece is important because there's only so many seats. There's limited seats out of this city, which creates a bottleneck. That's why the city of El Paso, among many other things, that's why they issued a state of emergency. Now process this with me. Title 42 is still in effect and it allows immigration agents to very swiftly return migrants back to Mexico. So the obvious question here is why are we seeing so many migrants in El Paso right now? Now, I've been talking to migrants, officials on both sides of the border, and also community leaders on both sides of the border. And here's what they tell me. There's about 40,000, nearly 40,000 migrants who are in northern Mexican cities who've been waiting, some of them for months, for Title 42 to lift. A lot of them are losing their patience and they're crossing over the border. Now, they're crossing some of them by turning themselves into border authorities. Others are not. They are crossing illegally. And so that is what you're seeing here a mixed status, individuals who are both turning themselves into border authorities and also crossing the border illegally. That's why you're seeing a lot of these individuals here in El Paso, even though Title 42 is still in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable Kate to see that scene, that scene behind you. We talked to the mayor of El Paso yesterday about the influx uh, of people in his city, what it looks like, or he was said he went across the border. And then he talked to people who said they felt like once that deadline happens, once Title 42 is lifted, that it means essentially that the border is open. I think it raises the question of whether officials there feel like the Biden administration is prepared for what it's going to look like on May 12th. You know, you're absolutely right. And I just want to show you that this is the alley in between this block and you can see that on both sides there are people still 
sleeping on the street. Again, these are hundreds of individuals. And Caitlin, back to your question. The Biden administration has been preparing for the lifting of Title 42 for more than a year now. And to be fair, the administration has seen a change in both the nationalities and the individuals who are crossing the border and also ge geographically where the flow is coming from. Now, the administration has done multiple things. Some of them you can actually see. For example, they have added holding capacity by adding about 10 soft-sided facilities since 2021. They've also added air and transportation capabilities, not only to deport migrants back to their home countries if they're not admissible into the United States, but also to decompress. It's a really fancy word for saying they're moving migrants where they're at capacity, i.e. here in El Paso, you're seeing a lot of people here on the street, to areas on the border where they have space for processing. And then there's things that you really can't see because these are policy changes. And those are, to be very brief, in essence, legal pathways for migrants to enter into the country. But here's the key. The administration is adding legal consequences for individuals right. that don't use those legal pathways, uh, Caitlin and Poppy. And so what they're trying to do is to deter illegal immigration, asking migrants to do it the legal way. Yeah. Rosa Flores, th thank you very much for being there. And we'll keep coming to you as we approach this May 11th you know, expiration. What happens, as Caitlin said? the next day, May 12th. Yeah, everyone's watching that day on the calendar. Also, until then, released this morning, the Surgeon General is laying out framework to tackle loneliness and to, quote, mend the social fabric of our nation. We're going to break down what they're saying should happen next. But before we go to break, the world of folk music saying goodbye to Canadian songwriter, songwriter, I should say, Gordon Lightfoot. He died on Monday at the age of 84. His death comes less than a month after he canceled his tour for this year. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau described him as one of our greatest singer-songwriters who captured our country's spirit in his music. It took me a while to realize I was actually struggling with loneliness. And loneliness, I think of as a great masquerader. It can look like different things. And yeah. some people, they become withdrawn. Others become irritable and angry. I'm going to be releasing uh, yeah. this week a Surgeon General's advisory on loneliness and isolation because yeah. I want to call the country's attention to this issue. And for people out there who are struggling, I want them to know that you are not alone. Wow. I, this is really powerful. That was the U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murphy, releasing that advisory that he mentioned, addressing what he's calling an epidemic of loneliness and isolation that is hitting this entire country. His advisory lays out six pillars to address this problem. Strengthen social infrastructure, establish pro-connection public policies, address social connection through public health systems, reform digital environments, deepen knowledge to address gaps in the data and build a culture of connection. This is after he wrote a really powerful and personal op-ed a few days ago in the New York Times. So let's discuss this now with New York Times best-selling author and host of the Mel Robbins podcast and a dear friend who we are so proud of all you have built and done, <laughs> Mel, since you were our buddy here at CNN, Mel Robbins. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you for asking me to come on and not only be with you, uh, but also talk about a really important topic that on its face, it feels like a snooze fest or that it's going to be a really heavy topic. But this is something that despite the hour, Poppy, I want everyone to wake up, lean in and pay attention to what we're about to say. Are we in a crisis, Mel, a loneliness crisis? We are absolutely in a loneliness crisis. When you see the data that one out of every two Americans is struggling with loneliness. And I want to break down what this means, Poppy, because 
You may not realize that you're dealing with loneliness like the Surgeon General. I certainly didn't. Uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, I started to wonder, am I depressed? Is this anxiety? Am I spiraling in a mental health crisis? And I realized I'm just profoundly lonely. And so I want to break this down for everybody so you understand what it actually means and what to do about it, because the policies and the recommendations are fantastic. But for you listening, this is something that you have to take seriously, Poppy, because it impacts every aspect of your physical and mental health. And so let's talk about the three types of loneliness that we all face, Poppy. The first one is emotional. And this means you feel as though you lack relationships and social connection. Because loneliness, Poppy, is really about the fact that you need connection, you need attachment, and you need a sense of belonging. And for so many of us that either moved during the pandemic or changed jobs, or we are working remote, we are missing relationships in our life. And so that's one way you can be lonely. Second way you can be lonely, everybody, is social, that you just don't feel like you belong to any group at all. And now that uh, attendance in religious organizations is down and people are working remote, again, a huge driver of this, you just don't feel like you belong anywhere. And then finally, the big one, existential, that's a form of loneliness where you no longer feel connected to your own values, that your life is sort of off track. And so I think the big question, Poppy, is what do you do when you realize, wow, I'm actually lonely? I think another question is, did COVID highlight this or did it did it make it worse? Did it amplify it? Both. I think it amplified it, but it also put a big highlighter on the fact that we really miss our friends. We miss being connected to people. We miss the rhythms. As much as we talk about the fact that hybrid work is fantastic and it allows you to be able to be more connected with your family if you're living with your family. But I think for a lot of us, what it highlighted is just that I really need this sense of connection. And there's a second problem that happened during COVID too, which is we, by being in lockdown, our nervous system flipped into a fight or flight mode and we actually, for a while there, were scared of other people. How many of you mm. feel as though you've become more introverted? How much harder is it for you to push yourself out of your house? Your default has become to kind of be more shut in instead of being more connected to other people. I had that conversation with three different people this weekend. Caitlin and I were at the White House Correspondents Center, and there were literally 2,600 people around us. And I felt a little bit, I don't know, I was like, uh, am I an introvert? Like, this is not me, but maybe this is me now. And I had this conversation with three people who were feeling the same way. Is it is the solution to loneliness just surrounding us ourselves with more people or the kind? No, right? It's about who we surround <laughs> ourselves with. You're shaking your head. Poppy, you, you just nailed it. You can be in a room full of people and feel deeply lonely. Yeah. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Whether it was in middle school or college where you walk in the first week of school and you walk into a cafeteria and you feel like you're not really connected to anybody. You don't belong. It's about the quality of the connection. You can feel lonely in your marriage. You can feel lonely at work. And so I think the really important thing is to think about, number one, what are you actually doing to create connection with people? Mm. And one thing that everybody can do today is make it a habit to text somebody every single day. Mm. 
Mm. Just reach out. I was just thinking about you. I miss you. I'd love to see you. That is enough to get the ball rolling. Mm. The second thing that you can do is figure out what's something that you did before the pandemic that created meaning for you, whether it was volunteering or a hobby. And simply volunteering or taking a class up here, there's a ton of people that moved Poppy during the pandemic. I happen to be one of them. I realize I don't know anybody here. We started a walking group using a local Facebook page. And so this is something that I want everybody to take seriously. I think most of us are struggling with a sense of loneliness. We don't see our friends as much. We're not at work with everybody. And it's something I want you to start to change. You got to take personal responsibility. The government can make recommendations, but ultimately this is something that you need to do. And this also means check in on your family members. Just because somebody's busy or surrounded by people, as you just said, Poppy, doesn't mean they actually feel connected to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is an important issue. Yeah, it's good to even just start the conversation. Mel Robbins, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. And Poppy, I'm going to be texting you later. Well, I call Caitlin every day because she loves the phone so much. I just call her every afternoon. Yeah, we're not lonely (laughs) over here. Don't worry. Thank you, Mel. Thanks, Mel. Jamie, go ahead. No, says Caitlin. Your interview, you know it better than me. Jamie Morgan, CEO Jamie Diamond says this is part of the this part of the crisis is over now that his bank bought First Republic, but some are saying Chase just got too big. We'll discuss. Plus, backpacks now being banned at public schools in Flint, Michigan. What's behind the move? What are students supposed to do now? We'll tell you that next. This morning, officials say they believe they have found two missing teenage girls. Unfortunately, among the seven bodies that were discovered at a property in Oklahoma, authorities had been searching for 14-year-old Ivy Webster and 16-year-old Brittany Brewer. They believe they found the girls among the bodies, along with the body of Jesse McFadden, who is a registered sex offender at his residence. He was scheduled to appear in court yesterday morning, but he didn't show up. Officials are still trying to identify the remains. Now they're not, they say they are not looking for a suspect, though, and there is no threat to the community. Well, this morning, backpacks are being banned at public schools in Flint, Michigan. The Flint Board of Education voting to enforce the policy through the rest of the school year over concerns about firearms, weapons, and other threats. They believe backpacks make it easier for students to hide weapons and clear backpacks. Don't completely fix the issue, they say. The school district superintendent says they're, they're very sorry for any inconvenience. But, quote, when it comes to the safety of our school community, we won't take any chances. Also this morning, Jenny Craig now warning all of its employees to start looking for other jobs because mass layoffs may be on the way for the company. NBC News reporting this morning that the fitness and weight loss company is winding down its weight loss centers. A drastic transition that comes as demand is skyrocketing for new prescription diabetes drugs like Ozempic, which we know some people are now using to lose weight. Though the company did not say if the move had anything to do with this new trend, We should note Jenny Craig does have 500 weight loss centers in the U.S. and in Canada. It hasn't said exactly how many locations are set to close, but in a statement, the company did tell CNN, like many other companies, we are currently transitioning from a brick-and-mortar retail business to a customer-friendly e-commerce-driven model. We'll have more details to share in the coming weeks as our plans are solidified. One of the company's competitors, which is WW, which is formerly known as Weight Watchers, is also scrambling to adjust to changes that we are seeing happening across the industry. It recently bought a telehealth company where doctors can provide patients with prescriptions like diabetes drugs that, as we noted, have been used to lose weight. It's really fascinating, the transition we're seeing there. Also, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon says the banking crisis should be 
pretty much his words resolved now that his bank has purchased First Republic, most of their assets. He made that comment yesterday during a call with analysts and journalists after his bank won the bidding to buy First Republic. It means J.P. Morgan Chase, America's biggest bank, is now even bigger. Senator Elizabeth Warren is not happy about that. She tweeted, the failure of First Republic Bank shows how deregulation has made the too-big-to-fail problem even worse. A poorly supervised bank was snapped up by an even bigger bank. Ultimately, taxpayers will be on the hook. Congress needs to make major reforms to fix a broken banking system. But listen to this. This is how Diamond defended this purchase. We need large, successful banks in the largest and most prosperous economy in the world. We have capability to help our clients who happen to be cities, schools, states, hospitals, governments. We bank countries. We bank the IMF. We bank the World Bank. You need large, successful banks. And anyone who thinks that it would be good for the United States of America not to have that should call me directly. (laughs) So they could talk. It'd actually be a fascinating joint interview as we bring in our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, anchor of Early Start, to have Jamie Dimon and Elizabeth Warren talk about these things because there's a lot there. What do you make of that? Well, look, he and that bank were able to come in and solve what could have been a chaotic problem in the American banking system because they are big and prosperous. And so that's the double-edged sword here. Um, The big banks get bigger. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is a mega bank, and it is much bigger, twice as big as it was after, uh, you know, 2009. And so there's this concern that you've got fewer banks today than you had uh, 20 years ago. I think half as many FDIC guaranteed institutions today as a, a decade ago. And the, the big the big remaining ones are a lot bigger. And so that's, you know, spun up a little bit of controversy from progressives in particular, but also maybe some discomfort, maybe in the White House. This is what the Wall Street Journal, as you pointed out earlier, said, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon rides to Biden's rescue. This is an editorial in the, in the paper today. Jamie Dimon must be smiling at the political irony. The Biden administration, which claims to hate big banks, according to the Journal editorial board, signed off Monday on a deal to let Mr. Dimon's giant J.P. Morgan Chase get bigger and even more uh, uh, profitable. So in a way, a big profitable bank was able to help stem the, you know, the bleeding in the American financial system because it is so big, but then gets bigger in the process. Well, and they do stand to profit from this. Sure. And I think it's also how regulators view them. They see them as like the adult in the room, uh, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the New York Times writes today, you know, they say whether some banks have become too big to fail, partly because regulators have allowed or even encouraged them to acquire these smaller financial institutions. Just a matter of not just what the practice happens when push comes to shove, but also how progressives on Capitol Hill, people like Ro Khanna, view this. Also, it shines a light back on the regulators, too, right? Because these banks, a bank above $50 billion, right, is supposed to have what we call a living will after the 2009 financial crisis. They have to have a wind-down resolution plan. Well, First First Republic had one of those at the end of last year that says, yeah, we look at our business model and there won't be, if something were to happen, there would not be any kind of chaotic, we would be able to dismantle this bank with no problem. They said that? Yeah, which obviously wasn't true. So, like, some of these banks, they have these living wills, but we still had three major banks go down. And look at the size of those banks. If you look at bank failures um, this year, those three big bank failures, $549 billion in total assets. All 25 of the biggest bank failures in 2008 was less than that. So this was already more valuable in terms of assets in in, in, in the bank failures this year than in 2008. Wow. Wow. Come back soon. I had many more questions, but we're out of time. Thank (laughs) you, Christine Romans. All right, the first Monday in May is one of fashion's biggest nights. Also a big night for cat lovers everywhere, apparently. We're going to show you who made the biggest red Cartman statements, who made a pregnancy announcement, who was very late. Uh, Plus, what late-night hosts are saying about the writer's strike that went into effect overnight. If there is a strike, do you go dark? 
If there's a strike, uh, yeah, I think we, we will, yeah. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A star-studded red carpet at fashion's biggest night, the Met Gala right here in New York. A-list celebrities, Rihanna, Kim Kardashian, and J-Lo hit the red carpet, just to name a few. The theme of the night, Karl Lagerfeld, the line of beauty. And even though the most anticipated guest, the designer's famous cat, Chappette, How'd I do? Right pronunciation? Yeah, All right, good. good. It was a no-show. The beloved pet was still very much represented. Take a look. This is Jared Leto, dressed as Choupette. Even Jimmy Fallon got a kick out of it. You see Jared Leto as Choupette the cat? I'm going to go take a Zyrtec right now. I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> Joining us now, fresh off his red carpet coverage, <laughs> senior editor of culture and events of Variety, Mark Malkin. Hi. Hi, What's how this are with you? The cat? People don't even know who Jared Leto was, right? What Wait, no, we, I was just screaming, there's a cat, there's a cat. <laughs> I was asking Lizzo, I'm like, did you meet the cat? She's like, I think I I'm on drugs. I was just asking Lizzo casually. <laughs> right. yeah, Choupette was Karl Lagerfeld's cat, and Choupette was treated like his child. Um, Choupette <gasps> is still alive. We were all expecting Choupette, but we got Jared Leto as a Choupette. We got Lil Nas X dressed as a cat. He meowed at me. <laughs> Um, Doja Cat was dressed as a cat. That's in theme. Um, so Chappette was literally, I was, I asked Selma Hayek, does Chappette ever scratch you? I'm like, this is where I'm going. So funny. <laughs> well, I mean, Poppy said you're fresh off your red carpet coverage. You like truly are because you were there very late because yep. typically the arrivals happen pretty early. One person that was very late. Yes. Yeah, so I would have been back in my hotel by 8.30, <laughs> but Rihanna did what Rihanna does. She showed up about 10.30. By the way, Guests were already leaving the gala when she showed up. They were bring, they gave donuts out to the guests when they were leaving. They brought the donuts out. Rihanna shows up, and literally we were waiting, and we we waited. It's Rihanna. You we're waited. going to wait. Uh, there were a lot of cool great. moments though last night. <laughs> there were a lot of. Uh, there was one icky moment involving a cockroach. Yeah, there was a cockroach. Yeah, so we were waiting for Rihanna. A cockroach <laughs> came flying through the press area, hit my cameraman in the head, cockroach disappears, then cockroach is on the carpet. Wait, wait, can we just watch this? Get a photo! Get a photo! Did you ask the cockroach what you guys wearing? Are you yelling at your cameraman? I'm yelling at a very famous... He's yelling at a very legit photographer. Very famous photographer, Kevin Mazur, who's shot everyone from Michael Jackson to the Beatles to the Rolling Stone. Get a photo of the cockroach. We were stir crazy. We were waiting for Rihanna. We get to New York. I, of course ha- there's... Right. We were waiting for the rat with the pizza <laughs> to come on the carpet. But I have to... I do have sad news. What? The cockroach was smushed. No. Someone killed the cockroach. Yeah, I'm in favor literally 15 minutes of fame. There were some um, cool moments, though. And one that stood out, stood out to me, Brittany Griner was there. She was there with Sherelle Griner on Saturday night at the White House Correspondents' yeah. Dinner. Obviously a big moment um, after President Biden negotiated her release. And then she was there last night as well. She was there last night. She was wearing Calvin Klein. They sent out that press release earlier in the day. She was one of the early ones who left. And everyone said, where are you going? Aren't you going to party tonight? She said, no, I have to go practice. That's so cool. Um, Serena Williams announcing her second child is on the way. On the carpet. Listen, this, this is the way to do it. You announce, you know, your uh, pregnancies on the carpet. Beyonce has done that in the past. Blake Lively has done that. So Serena Williams hit the carpet. 
People were looking at her going, we think she's pregnant, we think she's pregnant, and then she confirmed it. Just one, one I mean, Carl Lagerfeld does not come without controversy. Yeah. In a number of things that he had said over his career that were incredibly offensive, was that considered at all in this night? <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't think it was. I think it was one of these moments where people were trying to stress, we're looking at his fashion, sure. we're looking at his legacy. Um, you know, this was a man obviously was from a way different time, mm -hmm. um, but he definitely said things that were deemed offensive. And I think if he was still alive to, today saying those things, there's no way he would have gotten away with it. I do think that's an important thing to note, the, the time in which he, he made these comments. It's not an excuse by any right. means, but it is to note, you know, when he said sweatpants are a sign of defeat. He said that models should be thin. People didn't want plus size models. Comments like that that obviously have not aged well and no. just look differently in the way that we talk about this in 2023. Yeah, it's, it's very true. I mean, I think if you look at any designer back in the day, they probably said almost the same exact things. Um, Karl Lagerfeld was a larger than life character. Um, you know, the tribute to him last night, I have my nails, they're black you and do. white because I don't wear Chanel, I can't afford Chanel, <laughs> I could do my nails. Um, but yeah, it, to your point, I think, you know, he, he you don't, we can't forget what he did, we can't yeah. forget what he said, yeah. and I think, you know, that makes that whole person. Yeah, what a night. It was a it's night. It's the ticket. It's the ticket it, to it, get. It, I'm it, so it, glad you were there. It, it, was, it was pretty phenomenal. You know, my friend was just texting me, said, how did last night go? And I cursed a little bit. I was like, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's the Oscars. It's the Grammys. It's everything yeah. all rolled up into one. And, you know, I get Lil Nas X meowing at me. There you go. Meowing. The video is so great. I saw it on Twitter meowing. this morning. Mark, thank you. Fashion, <laughs> thank you. art, and oh. cats. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> and CNN This Morning continues right now. If there is a strike, do you go dark? If there's a strike, uh, yeah, I think we, we will, yeah. They are entitled uh, to make a living. I think it's a very reasonable demand that is being set out uh, by the Guild. These are our writers, and I'll stick myself in there because I'm WGA2, and they're so important to our show. They, they write the monologue, uh, the meanwhile, the cold open, and without these people, Without these people, this show would be called The Late Show with a guy rambling about the Lord of the Rings and boats for an hour. Well, good morning. You see where we're beginning this hour. We're glad you're with us. The writer's strike, we're going to feel it, I think, tonight. Yeah, I haven't seen shows. this in, what is it, 15 years? 2007. Yeah. It's been a long time. Hollywood writers, 11,000 plus of them are on strike this morning. Coming up, what it means for late night, your favorite shows and movies that are in production right now. Also, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has now accepted President Biden's invitation to meet next week about the debt limit after a new and urgent warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She says the government could run out of money by June 1st. And three stabbings in less than a week in a college town. UC Davis students are being told to stay inside. After another attack this morning, we'll have the latest on the hunt for the suspects. CNN This Morning starts right now. Let's begin here. Let's get right to our Nick Watt. He is live in Los Angeles with more on Nick. What is a string of shoot, uh, stabbings, I should say, at UC Davis? What do you know this morning? Well, we know that a third person was stabbed Monday night, a third person stabbed within a week. Now, police are not saying definitively that all these three incidents are connected, but they say that there are similarities. The attacks were brutal and the suspect used a knife. So state 
FBI officials now involved in trying to find the suspect. Security is upped on campus, a shelter in place. This small college town, obviously on edge, this small, usually laid back college town on edge this morning as police still try to find a suspect. Now, the first attack was Thursday. A man known as the Compassion Guy, uh, David Bro, who was 50 years old, was found dead in a park. According to the mayor, Bro was a well-known figure in the town, would often walk up to people asking for their thoughts on compassion. Then Saturday night, a 22-year-old computer science student was stabbed and killed in another park, just about a mile and a half away riding his bicycle back from a, an undergraduate award ceremony. This young man, Karim Abu Najim, was due to graduate in about six weeks. His father told the local station KCRA that the family had moved to California in 2018 from Lebanon. He says, we came here hoping for safety. So Monday night, that was the third attack. A woman says she was stabbed through her tent in what police are calling a known transient camp. Now, the suspect from that Saturday night uh, murder that police are looking for, they describe as 19 to 23 years old, five foot seven, light skin, long curly hair. But while this manhunt continues, as I say, the community of Davis on edge. Guys. No question, Nick. Thank you very much. Also this morning, Hollywood writers are headed for the picket line on strike for the first time in 15 years, saying they're not paid fairly for their work. The Board of Directors for the Writers Guild of America tweeted overnight about 11.38 p.m. saying they voted unanimously to call a strike effective at midnight this morning. CNN's Oliver Darcy is tracking all of this and joins us now. Oliver, I guess the big question is how long this could potentially last, given the last one 15 years ago went on for 100 days, and what exactly the sticking points are here. Yeah, massive disruption taking over Hollywood this morning as more than 11,000 writers are now on strike after they failed to reach that agreement with the studios um, that, and that their previous agreement was, that it was expiring May 1st. So they have no agreement. They're now on strike. And there are a number of sticking points. Um, streaming is really factoring into uh, this dispute between the studios and the uh, writers. Uh, part of this is because streaming has really reshaped the way writers are paid. And so, for instance, they point to residual fees, uh, fees they would get uh, for their shows that they worked on, running on broadcast, re-airing on broadcast. They say those fees per basis, have uh, per episode, have gone down in light of streaming. And there are some other things as well. Now, the AMPTP, this is the trade ag agreement uh, organization, sorry, that represents uh, the studios, they said they were willing to move up on some stuff last night, but they were unable to reach an agreement. They're not willing, they say, to compromise on other things. And the Writers Guild, for their part, they released a statement last night, and they said uh, that the studio's responses to their proposals have been wholly insufficient given the existential crisis writers are facing. They have closed the door on their labor force and opened the door to writing as entirely freelance profession. So the big question is how long this will last. You, you should expect that late night shows will immediately go off the air because they rely on writers to produce those on a daily basis. But fall shows, shows that were supposed to premiere later this year, they could also be pushed back um, if a agreement is not hammered out pretty quickly. I, your uh, newsletter was fascinating on this. It was obviously the lead. But one of the points you make, and I think this is a question, if streaming is the future, mm -hmm. What the writers here are saying is we need a wholesale change. Streaming often has fewer episodes, for example, so they're getting less pay. So they're saying 
The structure of how people consume is changing. Therefore, the way we're compensated needs to change. Right. And this is one of the this is one of the main sticking points here, according to the AMPTP, because the Writers Guild says that because there are less episodes that are per uh, that are ordered on a streaming show. Right. That means there are less writers hired on the streaming show. And so they would like to fix this. Uh, the AMPTP is saying that this, the Writers Guild wants to force studios to hire a certain amount of writers, even if they're not needed, mm. to work on a show. And so this is one of the, the sticking points here. I'm not sure, obviously, how they're going to reach an agreement, but uh, certainly the, the strike now is going to apply some additional pressure to the studios. Yeah, and we've seen just how television production has ballooned in the last several years. We'll see how they resolve this and how long it takes. Oliver Darcy, thank you. This morning, a major highway in central Illinois has reopened after a blinding dust storm caused a 72-car pileup. It left six people dead, 37 people injured. Police say the rare storm caused zero visibility. These crashes involved passenger cars and commercial vehicles, including two tractor trailers that caught fire. We are just 30 days away from a potential economic catastrophe if Congress does not raise the debt limit. And now we're learning Speaker Kevin McCarthy has agreed to meet with President Biden for talks at the White House on Tuesday. The president has invited all four congressional leaders to that meeting, and it comes after an urgent and dire warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, now predicting in this letter the government could run out of money in less than a month, by June 1st. If it happens, millions of Americans could lose their jobs and their benefits. And despite the planned talks, President Biden is still refusing to give in to McCarthy's demands for huge spending cuts that would gut his agenda. Joining us now, CNN economics commentator and Washington Post columnist, Catherine Rampell, and CNN senior political analyst and anchor, John Avalon. Good morning, guys. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How are you? Uh, you say, I cannot say this emphatically enough, this would be catastrophic. Yes. Yes. Um, this is not a traditional government shutdown. I think a lot of people are confused. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. this is just when the national parks close. No. Um, this is when the government cannot pay its bills. Um, that affects, as you pointed out, the benefits that Americans receive, Social Security benefits, for example, uh, military salaries, et cetera. But even more catastrophically is that you could have a global financial crisis because the relative safety, the risklessness of U.S. debt is what basically underpins the entire global financial system. And if all of a sudden we look like unreliable borrowers, that has kind of these um, cascading effects mm -hmm. through other financial markets. And, and that would be bad, just to be clear, in case that's not obvious, besides the fact that it would also be unconstitutional. Um, you know, the, the, the Constitution literally says the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. Yeah, so and we've, we've worried so much about inflation, whether or not we're on the brink of a recession. That's been the number one question that's always asked to, to these top economic people in the White House. This is what people at home, though, will be affected by uh, almost immediately. This is so much scarier to me. The fact that Americans, if you look at polling data, only like a quarter of Americans think it would be a crisis if we defaulted on our debt, it should be much higher than that. Um, again, inflation is bad. Risk of recession is bad. Uh, banking turmoil, not so great. <laughs> Global financial crisis, way worse, way worse. Yeah. But it, it's also a function of the fact that folks haven't seen it, so it's hard to imagine. I mean, it, you cannot overstate how reckless this game of chicken is. Uh, it's the opposite of fiscally responsible. It makes democracy look dysfunctional. And the only people it benefits, ironically, are countries like China who want to see the United States removed as the world reserve currency. Because all of a sudden, we can't, we can't even take care of our own house. So th these are the stakes. And, and this is why, you, you know, this is not a lever to pull to push your own political agenda. Do that through the budget. Um, but, but here we are. 
Was it a mistake for the Democrats not to do it when they had control of both chambers? I think so. Uh, there were voices warning that this is coming. We know that, you know, this is going to matter. This, this is Groundhog Day only when a Democrat is president. And that and they, they, could, they had unified control and they could have taken steps to take this off the table. We're the only country in the world that does this to ourselves. And we're the one that, frankly, has the largest, you know, at stake. So we could have taken it off the table. We didn't. I think that was a mistake. Maybe some folks thought they would get political benefit out of Republicans playing this game. But everybody loses if we go over this clip. Well, but to their credit... Republicans did vote to raise the debt ceiling under Trump multiple times, times with no conditions attached. And so the question here, though, is this is the situation we're in. McCarthy has now accepted this invitation to go to the White House next week. McConnell and Schumer are also invited, but they aren't really a factor in this. It's between McCarthy and Biden to come to an agreement yeah. here. And it's basically a question of who blinks first and when. I think the challenge is, even if you accept the premise that it is appropriate to negotiate with a gun to the head of the global economy, right, to take, to take the debt limit hostage um, in exchange for some demands, the problem is Republicans still don't know what their demands are. Yes, they passed this bill last week, but it has across-the-board spending caps. It does not specify what they would cut because they don't know what they would cut. Yeah, and knowing it wouldn't be real, basically. And, and, and anything that they would specify would be so unpopular. They know that. You know, are you going to cut infant nutrition? Are you going to cut the FBI? Are you going to cut border security? All of those things are so unpopular, which is why they have this vague, unspecified across-the-board spending cap plan, which is similar to what they did in 2011 by the way, and they could not keep to in that, 2011. They kept voting to, to exceed their yeah. own limits. Yes. When, when Republicans had unified control in particular, look, what, what Catherine said is right, but it's also a reason to not take Democrats saying, here's what would be cut as gospel, because in fact, nobody knows. There are specific proposals Republicans have put forward, some of which could be popular and you might be able to get a side agreement on, permitting reform, clawing back unspent COVID spending. We disagree about this, but uh, work requirements. Those are areas where, where the Democrats could make concessions, but say, let's do it in regular order. Let's not do this with a gun to the head of the global economy. Yeah, I think it is perfectly appropriate to negotiate over the budget when you're supposed to be negotiating over the budget. It is not appropriate to be taking a hostage as a condition of getting those demands. Yeah, and with this warning from Yellen, it's basically went from this slow speed fight we were watching play out to now, you know, the clock is ticking. There's literally a countdown. Uh, Catherine Rempel, John Avalon, thank you both for that. Also, a quick programming note is on top of all of this, as we are watching politics so closely here, former President Trump is going to take questions from New Hampshire primary voters in an exclusive CNN town hall. I'm going to moderate that event next Wednesday, May 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern. So looking forward to seeing that. Uh, really important for him to take voter questions. He is the front runner right now in the GOP. New overnight, Samsung banning the use of generative AI on their company devices. They're joining a growing list of companies clamping down. We'll speak to the co-founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak. We call him Woz. <laughs> Here are the biggest dangers he sees in the rise of AI. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, computer intelligence has come a long way, although that joke could probably have been written today by ChatGPT. And of course, with Steve Jobs introducing Apple's pioneering Macintosh computer almost 40 years ago. Jobs' friend and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak is now among a chorus of tech leaders calling for a pause on artificial intelligence, citing, quote, profound risks 
to humanity. Just overnight, Samsung became the latest in a growing list of companies to ban the use of AI on their company devices. Wozniak, Elon Musk, other tech leaders recently wrote in an open letter that AI developers are, quote, locked in an all-out, in an out-of-control, I should say, race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. People listen when Wozniak talks about tech, about all of this. He designed the revolutionary Apple One and two computers that helped put Apple on the map. The Apple One they built in Jobs' parents' garage back in 1976. So we're really happy to have him with us this morning. Good morning to you. Oh, good morning to you. It's plenty early out here in California. It's plenty early. We appreciate you getting up early. Look, you're worried. Elon Musk is worried. We just saw the man from Google known as sort of the grandfather of AI quit because of how worried he is. What do people need to know? Well, you got a little bit wrong about me. I'm not like worried. I, I believe in fear and leaving a life of fear. I just believe that when some powerful technology is introduced, uh, we should look that almost all technology brings some good things to us and mm -hmm. some bad things, and we should be responsible and we should study these things and kind of be, prepare people for what's coming and take steps maybe to um, uh, keep it from being too horrible and bad. For example, you know, look at how many bad people out there are just hitting us with spam and trying to get our passwords and take over our accounts and mess up our lives. And, you know, and now AI is another more powerful tool. And it's going to be used by those people, um, you know, for basically uh, really evil purposes. And I hate to see technology being used that way. It shouldn't be. And some probably some types of regulation are, are needed. Regulation is telling parties that are producing things you will obey, you will not do certain bad things. It's like our Bill of Rights. The Congress will not pass certain types of laws. And, you know, you call that regulation. It's not like stopping you from doing your business. It's just saying, no, you've got to have some ethical concerns. I'm also curious to how your thinking on AI has evolved since recent years. In 2018, you did this interview that I was watching yesterday. You said this about AI. No machine sits down and says, hmm, what should I work on? Humans tell it what to work on. Mm -hmm. No machine, machines can just do it well for us. So we're building technology that will make life easier for us. And where, where's the lack of jobs? Mm -hmm. At least where I come from, in the United States, uh, you know, people have jobs. And now we see what you're saying and, and also talking about regulation. Can there be global regulation, though, for something like this technology? No, there never can be. It's one of the reasons that technology has so many bad sides. I often say those that brought us this digital world, you know, when I look back at some of the easier life days and less worries about the, all this stuff and things worked more, I say, you know, those that brought us this digital revolution should be executed or worse yet, make them live in it. <laughs> and that's so. So I, you know, yeah. So how can you can not regulate bad people very well? Could AI be employed to spot all these little tricky, tricky little worded spams that are, you know, trying to get your passwords and all that. Could they spot that? It's never being used that way. It's being used by people who want to ooh, make a name for themselves or make money for themselves. And uh, um, that, that never quite goes as well as it should. 
I want to talk. It's kind of like love over money. I mean, I have feelings, I have emotions, and you know what? If I read a certain story, I might cry. Does AI cry? You know, and so um, it's being employed for the benefit of humans. When we started, even with Apple Computer, a personal computer was a tool that would let humans do more than they ever did before, and and be more capable and in control of their own destiny more. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like hard to judge it that way now. Do we ever get to that world where we're happier and happier mm -hmm. than they were? 10,000 years ago? Mm. Nothing tells me that's true. I want to talk about what you would do, um, because the fact I mentioned the godfather of AI, as he's known, Jeffrey Hinton, who left Google, right, in the last week. And here's yes. what he said. The idea that this stuff, AI, could actually get smarter than people, a few people believed that. But most people thought it was way off. And I thought it was way off. I thought it was 30 to 50 years even longer away. Obviously, I no longer think that. When we started this interview, you said, maybe we have to take changes. This letter talks about pausing things potentially. This is what Google CEO, right, where Hinton worked, Google CEO Sundar Pichai told me in 2019 about slowing down on AI if they have to. Here's what he said. You're basically, basically saying we have to weigh our technological advancement and competitiveness with what it means for humanity. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think it's important, and I think it's important. That's what society expects us to do. That was then. This is now. Should Google slow it down? And, it, and the competitors? Well, Jeffrey Hinton is, you know, he won the Turing Award, and that's the Nobel Prize, you know, of computer science. So I would die for that. Um, I got one close to it, but uh, um, so, and these people that were involved in AI from the start, uh, he's obviously one of them, and uh, um, uh, the woman who's CTO at OpenAI, you know, and they put out, yes, there are concerns, yes, we should have regulation, and they are very close to it. They're the producers of this technology. So, um, you normal people um, out there, we should be told, here is something that was generated by AI. So we can say, you know, I prefer to know things that are always right and not some that are a little bit untrustable and flaky. I like the trust. Well, as, what do you think about the political aspect of this, though? Because we saw President Biden announce that he's running for re-election. Republicans responded with this AI-generated ad, mm -hmm. basically saying it'd be this dystopian future if he's re-elected. It was criticized. Are you worried about the harmful effects AI could have on our, on our politics? Well, AI has beneficial effects in giving us like a lot of good guidance, like being a good reporter, and we humans should be the editor. There should always be a human editor. And when that's not the case, um, we're going to have a lot of problems. Um, you know, as far as, you know, AI being used to, I don't know, deep fakes, you know, making somebody sound like a person you know in their voice and taking advantage of, you know, a mother. Um, we've seen that recently, and, and there's going to be a lot more of that than there ever was before tricking you into things. Tricking's going to be a lot easier for those who want to trick you. And, uh, you know, we don't really have any, we're not really making any changes in that regard. We're just assuming that the laws we have will take care of it. So I, I'm a little, um, you know, worried that people about people being abused more than anything else. Fortunately, I'm not political, but yes, it could be used. AI could be used to kind of sway and make it seem like political truths are there. But people are very different, and AI tends to come out with a, a broadcast that sort of says we're all the same. I am truth. I am, you know, here is a very deep understanding of something. Well, you don't even know what I'm going to feel like eating tonight, you know. <laughs> and AI is just not like that. It just misses a lot of the emotional drive. A lot of the decisions we make have an emotional 
um, content. And AI will kind of act like, oh, here's a decision to make, you know, and it's just kind of like monotone, sort of boring. We have so many questions, Steve. We hope you'll was, I should say. We hope you'll come back. But can I ask one more before you go, actually? Because one thing we always talk about here is Elon Musk. Do you talk to Elon Musk ever? I've never actually met him and spoke with him. I admire some things that he's done for the world, changing us towards electric cars. But, you know, his real motivations inside, is he really a purist of trying to clean the air and all that, um, gets shadowed by a lot of other things. And he uh, basically got a lot of money from myself for cars. I believe things he said, that a car would drive itself across the country by the end of 2016. Oh, I had to upgrade to that model, you know, $50,000. And then it wouldn't do anything. I could tell it wouldn't ever make it across the country. And he said, here we have a new one with eight cameras. It'll make it across the country by the end of 2017. I actually believed those things. And it's not even close to reality. And boy, if you want a study of, of AI gone wrong and taking a lot of claims and but trying to kill you every chance it can, get a Tesla. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Any thoughts on how he's running Twitter? Well, it's it's kind of bumbling. I can't say good or bad. I'm not I'm not really there. And Twitter, um, you know, probably needs a lot of change and revamping in most people's eyes. So we'll see. I mean, Twitter's a social network and I pretty much avoid the social networks. Um, just part of, uh, I don't know, you can get so distorted and get in groups and people are free to criticize everybody and they're sort of anonymous and they aren't judged. People can do illegal things very easily on YouTube or on Twitter, very illegal things. You, you point at it and the companies won't do anything to even shut it down other than mm -hmm. you can report it, like you can report anything and they'll take that one instance mm -hmm. down and another pops up like, like whack-a-mole. No, these, the, you know, this whole, the way the social web works brought a lot of negatives. You can mm -hmm. see that movie, mm -hmm. The Social Dilemma, and um, it's full of a lot of negatives of yeah. how they treat the users That's... and kind of meld them just to get more business. It's a really- Love worth it versus money really important documentary you point to. Yeah. Um, and we should know Tesla would probably dispute what, what yes. you said about the cars. I know that you have expressed frustration before with what Elon had said the cars would be able to do, what their capability actually was. Fascinating conversation, Steve. We loved having you on, and we hope you come back, even though it is really early for you. Yeah, I'm any time zone for me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Also this morning, a Muslim New, New Jersey mayor is demanding answers. He says he was turned away from the White House yesterday. What the Secret Service is saying and what the mayor thinks was behind that decision. Mayor Mohammed Karula is going to join us live next. I want everyone of all the elected officials here who serve in city, county, state governments across the nation. I want to compliment you. Some of you are the first Muslims ever to hold the seats you have. Thank you, and I'm so proud to see this during my time as President of the United States. That was President Biden yesterday welcoming Muslim leaders from across the nation to the White House to mark the end of Ramadan. But Mohammed Karula, who is the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, says he got a call uninviting him from that event just about 30 minutes before he was set to arrive at the White House. Afterward, the Secret Service released a statement saying, quote, we regret any inconvenience this may have caused. No further explanation was offered about why he was not allowed access inside the White House. Mayor Carulla joins us now. And Mayor, thank you for being here. I know this system well. It's called Waves. It's the Secret Service system where 
you put in your name, your birth date, your social security number, and Secret Service is a check on you basically before they grant you access into the White House. Have you gotten any further explanation from the White House, from Secret Service, on why they told you you would not be able to come in? Well, good morning uh, to both of you. Um, no, uh, at this point, we still did not receive any explanation. Uh, all what happened is I received that call as I was entering D.C. and uh, I was told uh, by a staffer from the White House Social uh, Events uh, Department that the Secret Service advised them that I cannot attend the event and that the Secret Service did not provide them with any explanation. What questions do you have for the Biden White House this morning? Well, I, I think the the big question is, what are we going to do about the targeting of, of Arabs, Muslims, South Asians uh, by federal agencies that are basically not telling us why we are being harassed at airports, uh, border crossings, and now for me to be denied entry into the people's house uh, is, is baffling. Um, um, why aren't there checks and balances on these uh, uncontrolled powers to, to put us on, on uh, lists that are not admitted to and that are essentially illegal and, and, and target uh, Americans of, of certain backgrounds? Which federal agency specifically do you believe is targeting you? Well, according to the um, Council on American-Islamic Relations, uh, relations, I was placed on a list that was created by the FBI um, So back in 2019. And that's when my problem started initially as I was returning to the U.S. from Turkey, where I was asked directly by a, a Customs and Border con uh, Control agent, and I quote, did you meet with any terrorists while you were in Turkey? We cannot verify uh, what you just said about that list. Obviously, we're doing our reporting. We're, we're reaching out. We've reached out to these agencies trying to get more information. I just finally, Mayor, if, if you were invited to the White House again, would you accept that invitation? I, I think I would accept it uh, under the condition that we are going to discuss uh, the secret list uh, and the targeting of, of Muslims, South Asians, uh, Middle Easterners, and anybody. No one should be targeted, uh, especially as an American citizen. Uh, if someone like me, who has a high profile, who has clearly served their community, who has demonstrated dedication to local community and global community, mm -hmm. can be targeted like that, I have someone who could speak on my behalf the average citizen doesn't know who to turn mm -hmm. to and who to speak to. Uh, so I, I think there has to be a system of checks and balances on, on how these agencies are adding people to the list while denying that there is such lists. Mayor, have you had any issues flying since that 2019 incident you just referenced in JFK? Uh, I did. I had plenty of incidents, and many of them included uh, embarrassment of my family as, as well. Um, and I had an incident while returning from Canada uh, through uh, border crossing, land border crossing, uh, at which point the agent, after a few hours of holding me, said, we think we fixed your problem. Uh, 
Uh, so last year I traveled internationally and I was fine, only to see that this uh, targeting continues while I'm, I'm going to the White House. Mayor Carulla, we've asked the White House, the Secret Service, for further questions on this. Please let us know if you hear any explanation from, from President Biden's team. Will do. Thank you. The White House estimates that Russia has suffered more than 100,000 casualties in the war in Ukraine, including 20,000 killed in action since December alone. What this means for the trajectory of that war, former United States ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, is live in studio. I felt all the support from this room, I really did, throughout, and it gave me a lot of strength to keep going. The pause you heard there was for Fox News foreign correspondent Benjamin Hall, who got a standing ovation from his colleagues in the press corps at yesterday's State Department briefing. It was his return to the briefing room and to work after a year-long recovery after a deadly missile attack in Ukraine that killed two of his colleagues. Ukraine's military says Russia has now launched a fresh round of missile attacks across the country yesterday. The White House says Russia has exhausted its military stockpiles and its armed forces over its winter offensive, estimating Russian forces have actually suffered more than 100,000 casualties, including over 20,000 killed in action since December alone. The Kremlin has denied that, we should note. Fox's Benjamin Hall sat down with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to talk about the invasion, pushing him also on Russia's detainment of American citizens. But I think what you're seeing, again, is uh, maybe the biggest sanction of all is to further Russia's isolation, an isolation that began when but they invaded Ukraine. Stop, but that, that hasn't mm. stopped them from taking Americans. No. At some point, uh, along with the, the isolation, along with measures that uh, we can take, that others can take, and by the way, we're working with other countries uh, to build an even stronger coalition to make sure that there are strong consequences for any country that engages in these practices. Joining us now, Samantha Power, the administrator for the United States Agency for International Aid and the former United States ambassador to the United Nations. Later today, she is going to be delivering a keynote address at the United Nations commemorating World Press Freedom Day and outlining what her agency plans to do to protect American journalists who are reporting abroad. Thank you for being here. You know, Obviously, Evan Gerskovich is the first name that everyone thinks of. That's what uh, Benjamin Hall was asking Secretary of State Blinken about. You're launching a new program today that will give resources to journalists around the world who are dealing and interacting with these authoritarian governments. How will that work? What could it have done to potentially help someone like an Evan Gerskovich, potentially? Well, right now around the world, there are more than 500 uh, journalists who are in detention of some kind. And just in the last year, 67 journalists have been killed while doing their work. This is a growing phenomenon, is a growing problem. As countries become more repressive, as corrupt actors want to hide what they're doing, they lash out at journalists. And one of the things we realized is that lately, the tactic is to actually bankrupt journalists as well as to detain them. And so what we're launching today is called Reporter Shield. It's an insurance fund that will allow journalists who may not have the means to compete with a repressive government or an oligarch to actually have the insurance and the 
legal protection uh, that they need in order to fight back and stay in business, stay in the business of holding accountable those actors who are trying to steal and repress their people. What about in a place like Mexico, where so many reporters have been murdered? The New Yorker just did a a fantastic investigative piece on how a member of the media there was killed for exposing what cartels are doing and the level of influence they have over the government. Well, in our engagement with every government, we are, of course, encouraging them to have the checks and balances and the legal systems in place. Uh, But USAID, the agency I'm privileged to run, provides about $160 million in support for independent media and for journalists around the world in everything from legal protection to viability, uh, given that, again, these journalists that do the work can be driven out of business as well just by the digital age and by changing, uh, you know, economics. So we recognize the importance as a governance means of having free media doing their work all around the world, and we try to support it as the United States. Turning to Ukraine, which is one of those places where reporters are doing incredible work telling the story of what's been happening ever since Russia invaded over a year ago, this new assessment from the administration saying that casualty figures from Russia's winter offensive is in the 100,000. Obviously, that's casualties. That's not just all killed. They said that number is closer to 20,000. They say that's a clear effort that what Russia is doing is backfired. Do you, is that how you see it, too? Well, I mean, that's, those are devastating numbers. I mean, 20,000 soldiers killed just since December. I mean, this was a battle that Putin thought he could win in a week or a couple weeks, just decapitate the government, you know, put in place uh, some allies right there in Kiev and, you know, create greater Russia. That's not happened. And the cost for Russia every day of this grinding war just goes up and up and up. Um, But, you know, we now are uh, at a crossroads because the Ukrainians, of course, want to take back the territory that has been unjustly taken from them. We at USAID helped Ukraine, as did so many partners around the world, get through the winter because Putin tried to weaponize winter and actually sort of freeze them into surrender. It didn't work. The Ukrainians stood up. We supported the rebuilding of pipes, the provision of uh, generators, heaters, boilers. We're now through the winter, and this summer is a critical time, of course, for the people of Ukraine. It is a critical time, but leaked documents recently revealed that the Biden administration is kind of skeptical of whether or not Ukraine actually will be able to retake that territory. I think you've seen what the Ukrainians are capable of throughout this war. I mean, look just on a map at the geographic size of Russia and and Ukraine. Look at all the uh, forecasts that the Russian uh, government and and many around the world made about Ukraine's prospects for taking any territory back or even holding the territory that that they've managed to preserve. Uh, All those uh, people who bet against Ukraine have been proven wrong, and the same is likely to happen now. And and what we do as the United States is just put them in the strongest possible position uh, to succeed, both in terms of growing their democracy, their anti-corruption institutions, their media, their civil society. They're still doing all of that work at the same time they're they're fighting on the battlefield. While fighting this war. And your agency has sent some $12 billion, right, to Ukraine, to that figure, to, to, to help with that. I want to ask you about something that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said. He's in Israel right now, but he's been asked about what's happening in Ukraine a lot. He had this comment. This is an interaction, I should note, uh, during with a Russian reporter at a press conference in Israel. I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done to to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. It's probably some of the strongest comments we've heard from him on supporting Ukraine, where, you know, we've seen Republicans waffling on what that support is going to look like, how full-fledged it would be. What did you make of hearing that? 
Well, the, mo the united front that the United States has shown throughout this conflict has been absolutely critical. I mean, being able to provide uh, more than $16 billion in direct budget support to keep the lights on for the government, as well as the security assistance that gets all the headlines, that is a critical factor in supporting Ukraine and standing up against aggression. And this is an incredibly important set of comments, as has been the bipartisanship on the United States' response to this horrific uh, act of aggression, war of aggression uh, from the beginning. So we're encouraged. We look forward to continuing to engage Capitol Hill on further support down the line. But right now, again, we're taking advantage of the big supplemental that was passed in December to make sure that the Ukrainians can defend themselves, take back their territory. On the one hand, that's out of my lane, right. but also that those who've been displaced have the humanitarian support and, again, the support for a democracy that continues to get stronger even as the bombs fall. I can't let you go without asking about Sudan and what you're doing right now. What is your struggle with trying to make sure that people there who rely so much on international aid are able to get that given uh, what's happening with the fighting? Well, thank you so much for asking about it. I mean, 16 million people in Sudan were dependent on humanitarian assistance before, yeah, before this horrific this. civil war or conflict between two uh, military camps uh, unfolded. So we have set up a DART, which is a disaster assistance response team. Right now it's operating outside of the country, but we are looking to flood the zone with humanitarian assistance as soon as conditions can allow. And we can do that in, in different parts when do you of think the country that'll be? already. Well, again, already health items and food in certain parts of the country is flowing. Uh, but, you know, about more than a dozen of our partners have had to shut down their operations. We're hoping that they can start them up. It, it, this is where the diplomacy and the humanitarian have to go together because Secretary Blinken's pressure on both military factions to come to a ceasefire gave rise to a little bit of relief in the violence over the weekend, which enabled uh, additional evacuations. But we need a permanent ceasefire so that that humanitarian aid can reach people, people in need, given that so many hospitals have been bombed and, and people have run out of fuel and food already. Yeah, the situation has gotten so dire. Administrator, thank you for your time this morning and for thank joining you. us here. We'll thank watch you. your speech today. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Five things to keep your eye on today. Markets are going to open momentarily after a dire warning from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen that the U.S. government could default on its debts as soon as June 1st. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has now accepted a meeting with President Biden at the White House for talks a week from today. Today, we're expecting to hear from two key witnesses in E. Jean Carroll's trial against Donald Trump, a friend who Carroll confided in after the alleged rape and a woman who says Trump sexually assaulted her on an airplane in 1979. Also, the Hollywood writer's strike is on. More than 11,000 film and TV screenwriters are heading to the picket lines, grinding production to a halt. And the New Jersey Devils taking down the New York Rangers in Game 7 of the Hudson River rivalry, advancing to the second round of the NHL playoffs for the first time in over a decade. They'll head to Raleigh to take on the Carolina Hurricanes in the next round on Wednesday. I said that three times fast. What? Hudson River rivalry. I know. I couldn't, do it. I couldn't do it one time slow. <laughs> well, major crime uh, categories here in New York City are trending down. That's a good note, right? Grand Theft Auto is not. Mayor Adams announced his plans to combat the growing issue of stolen cars using Apple AirTags. With us now is our senior data reporter, Harry Anton. I'm laughing because I've thought of putting this on my children before, which I definitely think is not allowed. It's in their pockets. <laughs> and my girlfriend makes me have one in my wallet, so because I put my wallet all over the place. I never know where sure, it is. Sure, it's for your wallet. Yes, that's exactly right, right? So, okay, this morning's number is 500 because New York City is giving away 500 Apple AirTags to put in cars to combat car theft. 
I'll just note that is not a lot of car tags, uh, given that there are 1.5 million households with at least one car. That still leaves 1.5 million households without a free Apple AirTag. But, you know, we're talking about car theft in New York. And look, it is up considerably from 2021, up 32 percent from 2019, up 153 percent. We're not yet at 1993 levels, but the fact of the matter is car thefts are way up in New York City, and that's why they're giving away their, these Apple AirTags. I'm just not quite sure what they're really going to do. What, are you going to call the cops, right, when the Apple AirTags adios, when, when the Apple AirTag goes off when your car is stolen? You're not going to, like, go chase after your own car, right? I don't know. How fast are you? Um, I'd have to break the law, probably. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Very, very much. All right, CNN News Central starts after this, and we will see you here tomorrow. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.